and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Illinois with Bird and Cam. This is Bird, and as always with me, Cam. Cam, how we doing tonight? We're good. We're good. You know what I was actually thinking while that music was playing? What? Have you seen the trailer for the new Twilight Zone? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Yo. Everybody, you guys should watch Twilight Zone. Shit's crazy. It's awesome. I really love the Twilight Zone. Do they have the original... Uh, yep. Oh. Like, they, their first... Um... I walked into and watched the trailer because I was um, just kind of like looking through it real quickly. Um, but the, I think their first like episode they're doing is a remake of the, you know, the gremlin on the airplane wing. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I so, saw like the original one with William Shatner. And then they have yeah. the movie version with the bad guy from Dexter and Third Rock from the Sun and like all these other shits that aren't with the go. But yeah. <laughs> The original episode, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Like, I know that one's, like, the most well-known one, but mm-hmm. I used to, we used to, what is it, every New Year's Day, we would take down our Christmas tree and watch the Twilight Zone Yay. while doing it, so, like, That's... tradition for sure. Man, I got, I got to partake in that shit, okay. But... It's awesome, and then we had a big, like, Thanksgiving feast with turkey and everything, awesome, Ooh. delicious. <laughs> Again, ladies and gentlemen, um, again, thanks for uh, listening. Uh, last week we did a um, did the Saint Valentine's Day Massacre, uh, February fourteenth, two thousand nineteen, is the ninetieth anniversary of this infamous occasion. Probably the most infamous murders in the city's history. When you think about that, I mean the murders that we've covered so far in Chicago, and this one is. This one really takes the cake in a lot of people's eyes. It's historic. It's yeah. really a historic, as weird as this sounds, it's kind of a historic situation. It's part of the city. It's part of the history of the city. It's as weird as that sounds. Yeah. So um, without further ado, let's, you know, really get back into this shit. Um, but before we do, um, we just kind of give like a quick refresher of where we left things last time. So... Um, we talked about, uh, prohibition, which was pretty much the banning of sales on alcohol after about five or so decades of like this movement to really, you know, put a quell to it. And this kind of in terms leads to just a rise of organized crime in ways that in the past you had racketeering and you had gambling and you have prostitution, but now you have prohibition and people want to drink and well enter Al Capone and over the course of like a decade he comes into power and controls a nearly billion dollar a year market in prohibition on top of uh, gambling and racketeering and prostitution but then he has competition with Bugs Moran and other uh, competitors and this leads to like a ridiculous amount of bloodshed and all of this culminating into the St. Valentine's Day Massacre on February 14th, 1929. Um, and we, the, well, before we do this, uh, can we hit the good folks with a disclaimer? 
Absolutely. So first, we just want to start off <clears throat> with what we're going to be actually reporting. Um, this is all information and notes that we've gathered from Steve Shukas. Mm -hmm. I believe that's how you say his name. Yep. Um, and he actually wrote all of this information that we will pretty much be reading to you guys. Mm -hmm. um, so we did not write this. This is not our her words, but we are going to read it to you guys. We'll also mm -hmm. include the uh, links the link. to what we're reading. Yeah. So you guys can actually see what we got to read and look into. And mm -hmm. what's really great about this is it's a whole nother, just a whole nother way to look at it. Yeah. Because if I'm about to cut you off, but it's kind of like a conglomeration. I know I bought that word, but it sounds just right. So people can understand what it is, but it's a, it's a whole blob of like, all of these newspaper clippings of the Chicago Tribune as the investigation is happening. And I guess it's a really cool uh, perspective in history as it was unfolding. So again, it is Steve Shuckus at uh, ChicagoTrueCrime.com. And this was a whole bunch of clippings from the Chicago Tribune, but back to the detail. Exactly. Um, and like you were just saying, is the coolest part about this um information that we're going to read from Steve is it's a whole, it's a whole different idea of maybe who it could have been that caused the St. Valentine uh, Day Massacre. You know, we've, we've grown up thinking it was Al Capone or and, and so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll, we'll include the links for you guys. And, um, if any of this information seems, um, incorrect, or you guys, you know, want to uh, let us know any information that you know, or just want to, you know, get a shout out. Let us know. You can hit us up at Illinois with Bird and Cam. Um, yeah, we're excited to read uh, what Steve has to say because it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, and yeah, I, I'm just mumbling on and just <laughs> talking now. Without so, further ado, you ready to do the damn thing? I'm ready to do the damn thing. All right. So we get into the really a breaking point in this burgeoning investigation. And it happens on February 21st, just a week after the murders. And firemen were called to a building on 1723 North Wood Street when neighbors had saw smoke and flame pouring out a small garage. And the door had been barricaded from inside with crowbars. And once they controlled the situation, firefighters... Uh, discovered the remains of a 1927 Cadillac touring car. And what was really interesting about this uh, vehicle was it fit the exact same description of the Detective Bureau squad car that was seen at the garage where the massacre took place. And it appears, well, it wasn't appeared, but it was obvious that someone was really trying to get rid of this vehicle. It was cut. It was hacked apart by an axe, a saw, maybe even a torch. And the top and other combustible parts had been appeared to be burnt. And this, knowing this could be a huge fine, police were notified immediately. And the detectives found a police siren that had been removed from the Cadillac. So this is some, like, it really some big leaves. 
it's 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 very coincidental and according to Joe Penda, there's no such thing as a coincidence. So um I think this police car or this uh Cadillac has some type of relation to um the eyewitnesses seeing a cop like car driving away from you know, this murder and everything from that night. Um you know, then again, I don't know how many volunteer police officers were in the city at that time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but as you were saying, um, the entire hurry to effort to actually take apart this car and dismantle it um, stemmed from the recent um, order from the police officers to actually go through every single garage, shack, mobile looking home, anything in the city looking for liquor violations. Um, so the individuals that took apart this car, or as we like to think the killers, um, probably feared that these police officers and agents were actually looking for, you know, ideas of the car or the massacre. And during that time, the police actually did interview the owner of the garage, who is Leo, was it Joe Pet? Joe Leo Pet. And, uh, Joe Pet. He actually said, though, that he rented out his garage, um, actually on February 12th and two days before the actual said massacre. Um, Again, another coincidence. But anyways, um, Joe Pett said that he rented out um, his garage to this individual named Frank Rogers, who gave him his address, which was 1859 West North Avenue. And it said that Roger wanted to use the garage for only a month and actually gave Joe Pett uh, in advance. So he paid $20 up front. Hmm. So they go to 1859 North uh, West North Avenue, and though it was deserted, police noticed that this was the hangout of the Circus Cafe uh, street gang. And they were... Uh, implants from St. Louis, primarily Racketeer Claude, Screwy Maddox as the unofficial leader, and they were allied with the component organization. This included Jack McGurn, Antonio Cardo, so you see some kind of collusion or some kind of, you know, dilly-dallies going around. And on January 26, a couple weeks before, police had raided the cafe and hiding in the backroom annex, they found Claude Maddox, along with a dozen overcoats and a hundred-round submachine drum gun. Drum. Go. Allied with Al Capone, <laughs> do you think that he may have still hooked up with them to make this uh, massacre occur, or do you think that it's, again, Well, I mean, it's one of those things, and again, because Capone is in Florida, so whatever guilt like he has that for for argument purposes he has that alibi intact so you can't place him there to say okay well he could have probably gave the order but these guys are at you know near the scene and it's just only a few miles of that from the garage so in terms of proximity probably have yeah some kind so of, from yeah. what it seems like is he could have he could have made you know said okay but like there's no proof of him mm-hmm. actually doing it right hmm. interesting very interesting 
So despite there being a little bit more than um, part of the burnt of the car remaining, investigators were able to quickly trace um, the owner of the Cadillac. And the Cadillac actually changed a few hands a couple times. And it ended up being at a used car department of a Cadillac dealer right off of 23rd and Michigan. Mm. Actually, that Cadillac was only purchased for $850, which doesn't sound a lot, but back then that's... That's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah so I, just imagine a billion dollars too, though. Like eight fifty is a lot of money back then. A oh, billion. Geez. I mean, if we do that from inflation. I think we talked about the last week when we talk about uh, when you just adjust some of these, you know, dollar figures from nineteen twenty nine to two thousand eighteen. I bet won't be surprised if like eight fifty would be like what eight six thousand dollars or some shit like that. Three four thousand yeah. maybe, but. It, that's some that's some seriously bank serious bank right there. Yeah, we we might uh, have another uh, another our economic economy uh, economic bubble is about to pop again. So oh boy, don't 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 uh, make make me nervous. Um. I know, but anyways, um, the Cadillac was like we said earlier is um, from a dealership off of Twenty Third in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And the man who actually bought the Cadillac for $850 was identified as James Morton. But he actually was out of Los Angeles, California. However, within a few days, it was clear that the vehicle that was burned up was the car that was used by the murderers. And according to Assistant State's Attorney Harry Ditchburn in the Chicago Tribune, it was the car used by the murderers of the Moran gang. And even he even suggested a route of less than two miles that the killers likely followed from the massacre scene to the garage on Wood Street, south on Clark Street to Ogden, and southwest in either North or Cortland Avenues. Detectives discovered that the garage at 1723 Wood had previously been used by a miniature brewery. Its operator worked for a man named Dominic Capizio. Dominic was the brother of Anthony Tough Tony Capizio, who just happened to be co-owner at the Circus Cafe, and according to eyewitnesses, just three days before the fire, Capizio and a man named Raymond Schultz, possibly Maddox, uh, al- uh, alias, I should say, were seen around the garage wearing overalls covered in grease, as if they were working on a car. And the pieces, uh, according to those eyewitnesses, were the uh, or according to the police, I should say, the pieces were really falling into place. And Mrs. Myrtle Ingalls, a nurse at North Avenue Hospital, just a block away from the Wood Street Garage, had told investigators that on the night of the fire, and then man uh, of Italian descent came in saying that he was burned in the still explosion, and he wouldn't wait for the doctor finished with another patient and left. And he was probably afraid that the police uh, would come in as a report had to have been mandatory. And she described this man about... Five foot two, 140 pounds, and the police said that they, you know, they did some investigation around that, and they saw that it matched the description of a Tony Florentino, allegedly, according to rumor in the window, one of the members of the Circus Cafe gang. Betty, you're asking, saying, um, 
play that, it was uh, Tony Capizzo who's burned in the fire. Mm. Um, but it's not exactly clear to them. Um, investigators actually had an obvious starting point to look for suspects in the circus cafe. For their interviews there, they actually created a list of about 17 different men that were wanted uh, for them to question. They also raided Claude Maddox's office off of North Ashland and found evidence that Maddox may have brought in killers from St. Louis, which is crazy because that's where I'm residing right now. (laughs) St. Louis. Dirty bird. Which is is funny because I, my, my sister-in-law asked me this question. It's always blown my mind, but St. Louis is named after St. Louis, the King. So is it really St. Louis? Somebody Uh. help me out out there. It's St. Louis, St. Louis. Well, you know how Americans so, are. They kind of like, I mean, Louis the Fourteenth. It just doesn't. St. Louis. That means. Yeah, that's true. But whatever they uncovered uh, from the so-called or excuse me, but whatever the police uncovered from these so-called killers from St. Louis, it was enough spur for the assistant state's attorney Walker Butler and Lieutenant William Cossack to travel to St. Louis to meet with the chief of police down there. One second. Oh, boy. Sorry. And this down here is when he heard that killers wore police uniforms. The chief actually suggested that the two suspects that they thought were part of this situation were uh, Fred Burke and James Ray. And both of these men... Uh, have a very, very lengthy rap sheet. And they were wanted in a long series of murders and robberies all over the Midwest. And Burke had been a fugitive for the last four years. And Winkler, well, who was an acquaintance of Burke, was, of course, his partner in crime. And Winkler got his start with St. Louis Cuckoo Gang. Cuckoo! You know, and it's kind of crazy because... My name, they call me Birdman, but I can't do the damn birds call. <laughs> Can you roll your R? No, I can't. I know, I know I'm just going to botch it. Like, I usually botch big words. Like, it's just going to just, just, just... Like, fucking terror. <laughs> baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> but... <laughs> so, Winkler got his start with St. Louis' Cuckoo Game. While Burke was in for a time as a member of the notorious Egan Game or Egan's Rats. And Raymond Schloop, a.k.a. Shocker, who had been working around the Wood Street garage just before the Cadillac was found burning, had also been associated with Egan's Rats. And a lot of I mean, numerous eyewitnesses on St. Valentine's Day, including the chauffeur of the president of the Chicago Board of Education, noted one very distinct characteristic of the men that they saw that morning. And according to that uh, uh, eyewitness, they saw that one of the killers in the police uniform had two front teeth missing. And why is that so uh, particular? Because Fred Burke was missing two front teeth. Is that something that, like, was common back then? Where your teeth go missing? Or is that, like, like a very uncommon feature? Well, I mean, they didn't have, like, Listerine and upkeep in those days. Like, so, I I would like to imagine, but, I mean, it's very, like, you really stand out when you have two front teeth 
missing. Yeah. Like, it is not I mean, like, it, unless you're playing for the Blackhawks at that time. <laughs> or hockey, if you're playing, if you're not playing hockey, you shouldn't be missing anything. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so, that's, again, that's another coincidence. Oof. It's just, it's just weird. I find it, I find it very coincidental. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I guess it's one of those things that we really, uh, from what we've been talking about so far, we really find, like, it's a whole intricate web of, like, all of these characters. And, I mean, we always associate, okay, Capone and maybe his his top two three, uh, men. But then you find all of these layers. You have the correlating gang from St. Louis. Um, you have other... Uh, yeah, oh boy, I'm just my This was back blank. when the gangs ran the country. Yeah, this so, is back when the gangs ran ran politics, ran our country, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's so fascinating right. because this is literally the definition of them all being within three degrees of each other. Exactly. Yeah, and you think the something... only difference is mm-hmm. they know each other. They right. all know one another, and that's where that element of Everything is so black and white, at least how we were talking up to this point. But as we're going to see in this investigation, it's just a lot of gray just yeah. all over that and shit. Here's the craziest thing that, you know, talking about the web is like there's still one one individual that created the web. And who could that individual be? Mm-hmm. And we will get into that uh, individual <laughs> as we go along in the story. But... Uh, on February 27, 1929, an explosion had rocked suburban Maywood, just west of Chicago. And Maywood, I believe, if he hears this and if I get it wrong, he's going to kill me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Maywood is the original residence of uh, our very own Mackle, who um, it runs along with Jet Media Alley that we are a proud partner of. Um... When police responded to the scene near First Avenue in Harvard, they found a 1926 peerless touring car. Peerless cars, huh? I never What's heard the of a peerless car. the peerless and the Cadillac one? Hmm. I mean, I've heard, obviously everybody knows Cadillac, but peerless, like, what? wow. Yeah, I mean, hmm. I bet you if we saw a picture of it, it's probably like the classic, you know, movie car that we see. Yeah. Some relation like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So... This explosion did some really hefty damage to this car, but apparently it appeared to go off prematurely. Among the items scattered around the vehicle were stolen license plates, uh, a police-style gong, and a small notebook that appeared to have belonged to massacre victim Albert Wainshank. Because most of everything was still intact, the Chicago Police Department immediately dismissed this car as a plant, intended to... uh, throw off investigators see i don't know though because it's like okay it, it may have thrown them off but at the same time it's like okay whoever set this up mm-hmm. was the one that killed was the one that killed these individuals mm-hmm. easily so seeing that there's only two cars that had some relation to this massacre mm-hmm and they have both of them, it's a good chance that they can, they should have been able to start tracking them down, but 
Yeah. Then again, I forget that they can't do DNA and shit back then. Right. So. And if it doesn't get that more crazy, we have to, another layer of this case takes us all the way to Detroit, Michigan. And on December 14th of 1929, in a small town of, well, not Detroit, I just botched that one. Thank God we don't have an editor, Adam. But, <laughs> but in the small town of St. Joseph, Michigan, a uh, 22-year-old Forrest Cole of Buchanan was driving between Stevensville and St. Joseph, Michigan when he got in a minor accident with a Hudson Coupe. There wasn't much damage, only a scraped fender, but Cole was pissed. That's <laughs> probably I said Cole. Name's Cole, he's pissed. But... Oxymoron. Cole's <laughs> uh, feeling hot. <laughs> and... The other driver offered him cash to settle things on the spot, but Cole refused. And they have the little, still the altercation goes on, and Cole ends up following this driver in the city. And down they go to downtown, uh, Broad and Straight Streets, and Cole noticed patrolman Chris Charles Skelly, uh, Skelly. That's a, weird names these days. And he's directing Skelly. traffic. Skelly, Skelly, Skelly. Oh, Skelly. Yeah, sorry. Original Skelly. name, Skelly. Okay. Skelly. But directing Skelly. traffic <laughs> and waved over him to help. And Skelly, there we go, stepped into the running aboard of Cool's car and they followed the Hudson down Broad Street. They caught up to it a block away and when a driver stopped at a light. There, Scalay stepped from Cool's car onto the running board of the Hudson and ordered the driver to nearby station where they can sort things out. But as the light turned green, the driver of the Hudson pulled a 45 automatic and fired three times into Scalay. Just wow. And Scalay, wow. who's only 25 years old, had only been on the force for six months. And he was rushed to hospital, but unfortunately, he died later that evening. And other officers chased after the Hudson, barely a mile away where the road made a sharp turn. They found the car in a ditch. Two of the wheels were off. The car apparently skidded into the telephone pole before crashing, and there was no sign of the driver. And police inspected the vehicle, and they found uh, papers indicating that it belonged to a Fred Dane of Stevensonville. They went to Dane's address, but he wasn't there. And they searched the home trying to find some type of clues. Why would they just murder a police officer over just a minuscule traffic incident? And they forced open an upstairs bedroom closet of the Dane residence. And they find a fuckload of weapons. Two shotgun, uh, two sawed-off shotguns, a high-power automatic rifle, revolvers, tear gas, two time guns. They found him nine hundred and fucking rounds of machine gunfire and two sacks of pistols and shotgun cartridges. Holy cow! That's a lot of stuff. Whoa! Like that's some certain, Scarface shit. That's that's. That's a war. Yeah. <laughs> they're ready for a war that they that they can win. And what these police officers actually found was three bulletproof vests as well. And then they also had a dozen different disguises. Neighbors of Dane said that he and his wife, Viola, had actually moved to St. Stevensville only a few months earlier. But 
they seem to be a pretty, pretty respectful couple. They were cool. Some people actually believed that he was secretly a rich oil man, but other people thought he was an agent for a feed company. But the most useful clues that really showed his identity were found in the laundry. There were shirts with initialed FWD and mm. older ones initialed FRB and FRB and RB. They assumed that FWD was Fred Dane, but what about those other ones? Mm. Could those initials stand for Fred R. Burke or maybe occasionally he went by Ray Burke? But Dane's abandoned Hudson was actually traced to Cicero Auto. Uh, excuse me, the uh, Cicero Auto Auto Dealer. Excuse me, and it actually was sold in August of 1928 to a man named Van Clark, who it was discovered was really Fred Goetz, a fugitive who actually had murder charges. Who guess guess what was being hidden by the Capone game? Mm. Goetz was wanted for more than enough crimes and the most noteworthy is actually being the robbery of the American Express go truck in Toledo, Ohio. And that happened in April, uh, 1928. And that actually resulted with a machine gun murder of a police officer, George, is it Ziantera? Mm -hmm. George Ziantera. Yeah, yeah, you got and the that. Car, Look at you. I was going to say, the car that was <laughs> used in that robbery, thank you, um, was also traced to a purchase by Goaz in Cicero. So again, like you're saying, all this is connected. Yeah. But this time, when Goetz purchased this, he used the name Van Ness. And it's it's weird because Fred Burke's photo was identified by the witness as one of the Toledo robbers. Mm. And he's also wanted for another heist in Toledo where Gus Winkler, Robert Carey, and Ray Nugent were involved. Mm. So police are just looking for this motherfucker. They interview neighbors, residents, just trying to retrace his uh, escape route. And they later pieced up that after crashing the Hudson, Burke took off on foot and then commandeered an auto in gunpoint and had the driver to take him to uh, Jericho Road that was near Stevensonville. And there, he encountered a man named Albert Wishaw, who offered him a ride, unaware of what was going on. And eventually, Wishaw realized that something was up. And when Burke hopped out of the car to go to a drugstore, when it got to Stevensonville, Wishaw sped off, stranding him. And, and in that point, he really saved his own life. Yeah, uh, probably best thing he's done all night. Right. And investigators had determined that from there... Burke had ran to Steve Kinney's, another uh, neighbor's house, and he told him that his car had broken down and asked for a ride to Coloma, about 20 miles away. And Kinney had agreed, but became suspicious when Burke suggested a rather indirect route to their destination. And Kinney had made up a story about, oh, he needs gas. And uh, <laughs> again, this is like life, potentially life-saving like gumption. So it sucks because everyone's just trying to be nice and then they're like, oh, what did I get myself into? Mm -hmm. And from there, Burke really just vanishes into thin air. And from that point on, the police do not know where, the, where he is. Jesus Christ. 
So this actually leads us into part four of the Chicago True Crime dot com. Um, so yeah, you ready for part four? Yeah, let's do this shit. Yeah, let's do it. So the two machine guns, along with other weapons that were discovered at Burke's house after he disappeared, were actually driven straight to Chicago. There at the Cook County Coroner, uh, yeah, I read, uh, sorry, I can't read tonight. But anyways, there, the Cook County Coroner is Stay during, off drugs, kids. Uh, <laughs> what was that? I said stay off drugs, kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, what, what's that saying? This is your drugs, um, normal, and then this is mm, your drug, or, we, we, not your drugs, I'm sorry, this is your brain normal, and this is your brain on drugs, and it's like fried eggs. Yeah, those eggs look and so like, fucking good. And like, a normal egg, and I'm like, hmm, that's, that does not look fun. You've really, you've really let the deer, uh, mascot down. <laughs> deer mascot? Deer. I'm sorry, deer mascot. Deer, like, what the fuck? <laughs> no, deer, sorry, deer mascot, I, I disappointed you, I didn't have fried eggs. But anyways, back at the Cook County Corner, um, the jury actually had heard about a brand new science of forensic ballistics in which a bullet could actually be matched to a weapon from which it was fired, which is actually groundbreaking, a groundbreaking discovery because today in 2018, we still use this type of comparison. And Major Calvin uh Goddard uh, was actually working from a private lab in New York, and he actually was the pioneer in this field, which, again, is awesome to read about because it's it's very fascinating that each bullet is connected to a gun individually. Mm-hmm. So convinced that this could be the key to the this puzzle of the massacre, uh, Jerry Foreman Burt Massey asked Bunsen, uh, to bring Goddard and his equipment in on the case. When told that there was no funding for such an effort, Massey and another jury, uh, juror agreed to foot the bill. And, I mean, in this day and age, is is that even allowed? Is that like, I just don't think that's ethical. Well, and it's weird, too, because they only talk about another juror, which sounds like one other person, which isn't usually... Multiple? Mm-hmm. And, and think about that for a second. Like, we see, and we're probably getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves, and in many cases involving the mob, and you have witness intimidation, and you have jury tampering, and they get, like, bought off. But here in this case, uh, at least in this little uh, quizzit, you have j- the jury just really being proactive and like, look, we will fucking foot the bill. Just so we can get this, get this uh, situated, like it's very, very proactive uh, on top of them. Even though I don't think it is <laughs> ethical. Which is something you really don't hear about nowadays. No. Is, is you know a bunch of them just agreeing to being like, get this out, get this until they hear the actual case. Right. Everything needs to. The great, the cool thing is everything needs to be presented to them. But the bad thing is since everything's so easy accessible there's already opinions no matter what no matter what you can be someone who has no idea about the case but as soon as you hear the first couple notes you can look information up real quick right so it's a little fresh it's 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 
the, the bill was the mm-hmm. ginger to foot the bill. It's, it's weird because you don't hear it nowadays. No, you don't. So he examined the uh, bullets and shells found at the murder scene and determined that one shotgun and two submachine guns were used. The two machine guns fired a total of 70 rounds. One unloaded a 50-round drum and the other a 20-round magazine. And they tested virtually every machine gun that he can get his they can get their hands on, including those owned by the Chicago Police Department, hoping to match one to, to the bullets. And to that point, they didn't have any luck. But just days after getting Burke's arsenal, Goodard found a match, and he determined that both machine guns found at Burke's house had been used at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And he performed... That's, that's huge. Yeah. He performed microscopic comparisons of bullets found in the victims' bodies and those fired from Burke's weapons. And he showed juries that markings made by the extractor, firing pin, rifling, and ejector of one of the Burke's guns were identical to marks on one set of bullets from the murders. The markings from the second gun perfectly matched those on the second set of bullets, and Gooder had likened the markings to fingerprints, with no gun, two guns ever making the same markings. And Gooder further disclosed that one of the guns actually had been used in the murder of a Brooklyn mob boss, Frankie Yale, in New York in July of 1928. And Capone actually was suspected of ordering the hit on this one-timer mentor, which... Again, he was also suspected of putting the hit on this massacre, too. So, another coincidence. Hmm. But now that there was evidence to back up uh, that Burke was included, it was kind of different. Well, it was more secure. But early on, investigators had to track down the buyers and the sellers, and it was a multitude of machine guns sold in the Chicago area, especially at this time. And among these questions were actually Pierre von Frantis. Frantis. There's a Z in there. It'd be a great hangman name. Um, But this guy was actually considered the armor of Chicago gangland. So there were frighteningly few regulations regarding the the sale of submachine guns. Again, which corner butts in compared to the fisherman buying tackle? So, buying machine guns today is the same thing as buying AR fifteen. Yeah, exactly. Especially in America, it's probably like it was probably like buying candy back then. So it's yeah. more like buying alcoholic beverages, not underage. I don't know. It's a terrible comparison. I don't know. I was trying to be cool, but you get the A for effort. Thank you, F for failure. There you go. But anyways, the way they were able to just have sales on submachine guns, I'm sorry, there were very few questions asked, and there's actually a name that came up, and it was Russell Thompson. But he actually identified himself as Frank Thompson. He claimed to be a sporting goods dealer from Kirkland, Illinois, a tiny town which apparently has a very, very, very large appetite for submachine guns. And Thompson had gave Bunnison the sales records for each of the guns, and one had a serial of 7580, 
And that was among several that Thompson had sold to an ex-con from the West Side named James Bozo Shoop. And that same gun was found in Fred Burke's home in Michigan and is now identified by Gooder as having fired 20 rounds during the massacre. And Shoup was questioned in April, and he denied purchasing guns from Thompson or anyone for that matter. But at the same time, Shoup wasn't considered a suspect in the murders and was thought to be on good terms with Moran Gang. And any notion of re-interviewing him had to be scratched because Shope was killed in a shootout with one of member of his own gang on July 31st. And Shope actually managed to kill his killer. <laughs> so wow. it's a good way to go out though. Yeah. Like kill him before he kills you, which This is like from a fucking movie, I, I, right? I, I, This this is it's so fa- so much is going on. There's so much going on in America and the world, and mm-hmm. it's so fascinating. And just this whole lifestyle is just crazy. And it's just it's just insane. And I just I love reading about it. I love reading about you know the just the mob lifestyles and mantra and everything mm-hmm. yeah but back to our um guns that they had on records the mm-hmm. second murder weapon was identified and the serial number was 2347 and this fired 50 rounds the gun actually was originally sold to marion deputy sheriff leslie farmer and this was actually downstate here in illinois so that's definitely south of chicago the farmer actually later disappeared and was said to have been associated with Egan's Rat, which, again, I know some people probably don't even know where Heron, Illinois is. People down there were related to the mobsters of Chicago. Everybody was related, and it's not, like, personally related, but just You didn't have some kind of connection. And like it's, they have it's their so feet, crazy. They have their handprints on, like, every fucking corner of at least the state. We're talking about Illinois, but like, and there's no way to track it back to who actually did. Here's the plain evidence of the individuals who did it and witnesses, but who put on the head? Who ordered that? You're never gonna find that. No. So never, we, never. We get to 19 July of 1930. That is, and that's about what 16, 17 months after the mass murders. And we oh, go yeah. to the case of a man named Thomas Bonner, who was murdered at his home on 74th and Yale, which is just about less than a mile where I live. Uh, so Mrs. Bonner had identified Fred Burke as one of his killers, and she said that her husband was dabbled in various illegal rackets and knew Burke for years. But things had gone south for the two, and he was desperate for cash, Bonner was. And he heard about an enormous bounty being offered for Burke's uh, capture. And he thought, well, I need the money, so dude, 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 let's do this shit. Um, and they made a trip up into the Hess Lake region in Michigan where he suspected his old pal Burke was hiding. And according to his wife, immediately after Bonner returned to Chicago, there was a knock at his door. She heard her husband let the men in. They talked for a while. And then they begin to argue. And Mrs. Bonner had said she heard two gunshots. Ran to the living room 
and found her husband on the floor dead. So uh, that's just and kind she's, of a... she actually said that the killers were Fred Burke and the Sandy Hair Man, whom her husband also knew. Police raided a cottage at Heslake, but they came up empty. And it was actually thought that once again Burke had fled. And once again, it was right before the police were able to surround the place. Again, the search stepped up for Burr. There were armed officers and bulletproof vests everywhere, on every train, every boat that was leaving uh, Mus- Muskin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 40 yeah. Miles, which is, four, ugh, which is 40 miles <laughs> But once again... Fred Burke was one step ahead of everyone, and they could not catch him. So wanted for murder in Illinois, Michigan, and Ohio, the prime suspect in Frankie Yale's murder in New York, he was now being referred to as Killer Burke in the press, which that's a pretty that's a pretty uh, scary scary street name, right? Killer Burke. It's, I mean, it doesn't right, sound good up. off the tongue. Like, I mean, if it was kind of like something of like, oh, it's catchy. But no, it's just killer bird. Yeah, no, it, there's no and buts and noise. Yeah, not a, lot of, not a lot of creativity in that. And this is coming from a journalist. Like, I, uh, if, if I, let me say this. If I was tasked with covering a uh, crime, right, a crime spree, and I named somebody, uh, his name this is Killer Burke. Reddit was probably like, what the fuck are you thinking, Alex? No, think of something more like, no, no, that's, that is just too wooden. I'm sorry, that's just, that's my two cents, Killer Burke. I'm a shit is that. But, but during this, in what's, they call him Al Capone, Killer, Killer Al. Killer, Killer Al. Uh, uh, Killer no, Al. No, no, no. No, no. No. Almost, but I don't know. It's it still intimidating, especially during uh, that time. Killer Burke. Killer Burke. Killer Burke. <laughs> but actually, the reward to capture Killer Burke at that time was $100,000. True Detective magazines actually covered Burke's exploits as a member of the Egan Rats in St. Louis. They exploited him as a jewel thief, a kidnapper, an extortionist in Detroit. And a massacre murderer in Chicago. There, they really said there was nowhere for him to hide. Actually, a former member of Egan Rats named Ray Renard uh, speculated in a story in True Detective Mysteries magazine that Burke probably settled down in another quiet area. And he was probably exploring new fields for future jobs. And Joseph Hansacker, a truck driver and a gas station attendant from Green City, Missouri, was a Missouri. Um, was a Missouri. 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 It's Missouri. 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 There Missouri. we go. Oh, you got it before I did. Missouri was a big fan of the detective magazines. And can we just do a sidebar for a second? Like, uh, and like that was a really big thing in like the nineteen, especially the twenties and the thirties. Like these detective uh magazines really yeah like i remember distinctive not distinct like i I remember in those days back in 1935 it was in the height of the depression but no um i just remember like reading like just stuff on online and it's stuff about like like the fbi 
and the, what was the bureau as they called it in those days and like all of these kind of like the these mysteries these gum shooting wars if, if, if you uh you that's know. crazy yeah because so. like i was i was looking at you know just you know how big murders are now in the documentaries mm-hmm. it's always been kind of a fascination it yeah. seems like it's just we it's can't get enough of murders i guess in true murder crime. And just, yeah true crime crime in general it's just crazy to see how the brain works and again i i have this philosophy that like that there's some weird missing type of evolution from the individuals who look at murder as pleasure than individuals like us who think you know murder is murder mm-hmm. and i think like because it's more animalistic like those type of individuals killers are more animalistic in their features and how they act i don't know mm. but that's my weird theory so yeah so we go back to Hansaker and he reads a particular story in these detective magazines that includes photos of this killer Burke. And he starts thinking about a local man by the name of Richard White. And Hunsaker had said he was always suspicious of White's uh, affluence. And after seeing the photos of killer Burke, he thought that, hmm, he might, is something to this uh, white guy. <laughs> hey yo, killer bird. That's what I would call that. Now, if I saw him walking down. No, you call this white guy. Like, oh boy, this is a reverse, a reverse Liam Neeson going on. Uh, <laughs> you know, you'd be terrified if he showed up at your doorstep. Oh boy, yeah, black neighborhood. Yeah, fuck. Uh, <laughs> Not when killer Burke's on the loose. Does he come back to the grave and like machine gun the hell out of all you? Oh boy, so. Hunsaker starts stalking White, and he's really hoping to really crack uh, this conspiracy formula in his head that this Richard Wright, Wright, White character is actually Fred Killer Burke. I don't know why Killer I keep Burke. saying this Killer Burke, but I don't... <laughs> fuck. And he goes to the local authorities several times before they finally listened to him. And they learned that White was due to return from an out-of-town trip. And when they did, when he does, they make their move. And before dawn on March 26, 1931, the police department in St. Joseph, Missouri, surrounded a farmhouse outside of Million, Missouri. Barney Porter answered the door and police rushed in. And they found a star Richard White just getting up in bed. And they confront him. And White reveals himself as Fred Killer Burke. Dun dun dun! Oh, you, that, that, you just missed an uh, uh, amazing opportunity just to do the the Law and Order. Dun dun. Dun dun. There we go. <laughs> but it, it actually turned out that Burke had married again, and it was actually to this young, beautiful girl named Bonnie Porter. She and Mister White had been living with her father. Bonnie actually wasn't home at this time, but she was actually later taken into custody in Kansas City, and she was questioned. And at that time, she denied any knowledge of her husband's criminal life, and she was eventually let go. Actually, numerous states wanted to extradite Burke for uh, the criminal life, 
or I'm sorry, for trial. But Illinois and Michigan were the most obvious choices at this time. Michigan was eventually decided upon at, as first. And at this time, they had practically an airtight case. So why not get it out of the way? And it was against Burke for killing a police officer. Luckily, though, for Burke, Michigan had no death penalty, which gave him much fanfare. He was taken back to Michigan by a convoy of heavily armed men. And on April 27, 1931, he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder of Oscar Scully. Scully? Scully. Scully, I'm sorry. But he was act- and he was sentenced to life in prison at Marquette State Penitentiary. It, it kind of retreads for a second when you talk about escaping the death penalty. It, obviously, it's not as how it is today. With you just have a lethal injection, like not even like the ex, uh, when they would get um, what was it? They get the fried brain. They get uh, electrocuted. Mm-hmm. No, uh, well, they did have like electrocution and stuff, but like they would have. Uh, firing squad back in those days. They would have the oh, shit, hanging really? from the police. Like, and I was remembering. Um, I don't know if you watched the recent episode. Listen to a recent episode of True Crime all the time about the Popin sisters. And, yes, I did. And one of them, it's Popin. 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 But um, one of the sisters had got the guillotine. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, the guillotine was working. I heard the last time the guillotine was used was like, like the 1960s in like France was like the last time that it was used. Like it was very, it wasn't like in the 20s or anything. So like, why not use the guillotine? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I mean, maybe it's like another power thing. It's like the gang controlled the the mountain, the gang. The mobsters controlled everything, so taking that control from them is empowering. (laughs) I also listened to this one thing. I forgot which podcast it was, but it was, you know, it was an entire firing squad, but some of the individuals had blanks, so you didn't know who actually shot the individual at the wall, so you didn't go home with that guilt. Mm -hmm. I forgot it it was... it was a podcast I listened to, and it was like, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. So after Burke's sentencing, it just seemed that I don't think anybody was going to ever stand trial for the mask emergency because, again, he gets uh, bagged for just killing Scalay. And later that year, in November 1931, the Cacao Coroner officially closed its investigation and after almost three years of hearings, the coroner's verdict had stated specifically in that uh, seven men came to their deaths at the hands of a person or persons unknown. And the jurors recommended that police seek the slayers. But from all signs, this just smelled like a cold case. And as we reference from the end of the first uh, part that... Uh, nobody had, to this day, it's still officially a unsolved murder, murders, if you will. But that said, we still, it's still a lot of ambiguity in this story. And we have to jump three years. And it's, but it's, it's, 
It's fascinating too because they know because there's not enough evidence for them. Mm-hmm. They know who it is. We all know who it is, but it's it's a pretty clean case. Yeah. And like um, on January eighth, nineteen thirty-five, federal agents actually raided an apartment off of North Pine Grove on Chicago's north side. They were hunting members of the infamous Parker Carpus gang. Mm-hmm. And these were interstate robbers and kidnappers. But this time they were suspected in numerous holdups and murders, as well as a high-profile kidnapping of two wealthy St. Paul, Minnesota businessmen, William Ham, the executive of Ham's Brewery, in 1933, or I'm sorry, yeah, in June 1933, and the bank president, Edward Bremer, in January 1934. A shootout at Pine Grove Apartments actually ended with gang member Russell Gibson dead, and the rest of the occupants were actually under arrest. Among all those individuals taken into custody was 36-year-old William Brian Byron Bolton. So, um, we t- before as we uh, talk about Bolton, and as we're going to talk about in the next few minutes, um, it is important to note out from Shukas that... Uh, Many researchers and writers and historians of the like have noted that in years since have really questioned the veracity of uh, Bolton's confession up that we're going to get into in a bit. And um, just the, the investigation, the subsequent investigation of it and what was reported, like it's a lot of, as we talked earlier about, it's a lot of gray, not a lot of black and white as opposed to we'll be talking about a killer Burke. So that is something to keep in mind for when we, uh, as we get into it. But um, Bolton had grew up on a farm between Verdon and Thayer in downstate Illinois, and that's about 85 miles from La Casa Barbeau. And he served in the Navy during World War One, but within a few years of his return, he was running stills and bootleg operations in the East St. Louis area with a Chicago uh, gangster named Fred Goltz. And Goltz was on the run from the law in Chicago. And this is the same Goltz who was being hidden by Capone's people. And he just had connections, as obviously, within all the darkest depths of the underworld. And Bolton was described in FBI files as Goltz's stooge. And Goltz had introduced Bolton to the Barker Carpus gang and brought them along to the Ham and Bremer kidnapping. And in a few weeks after that, on January 23, 1935, the Chicago American ran this sensational story claiming that the Chicago St. Valentine's Day Massacre had been solved. And why would they say that? They reported that Byron Bolton had issued a complete and detailed confession to the FBI, and he just gives all the sauce. He names the shooters, the getaway drivers, the lookouts, the planners. So, I mean, as we talk about in the next few minutes, we don't know if this is the exact uh, truth or if this is rumored innuendo, but, yeah. So, the real question is, did it actually happen? Did what he say ever happen? And the Department of Justice constantly denied that Bolin ever made such a statement. 
DM led agent in charge of Chicago Division of Investigation actually said federal agents have not questioned Bolton about the massacre. Even the U.S. Attorney General Homer Cummings weighed in on the matter, and he described the reports of Bolton's massacre confession as completely erratic. And no one was more adamant in denying the story than the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. And like he said, there's not a word of truth in it. And he kept telling that to the reporters. Mm -hmm. And while they publicly denied that Bolton had said anything at all, privately, Hoover was fuming. He was pissed. And he was convinced that the phone lines of the Bureau's Chicago office actually had been compromised. Mm. And it was clear, it was clear indication that there was some truth behind the American story. And after being assured that the lines have been checked numerous times, and they were, in fact, actually secure lines, Hoover began fearing that one of his men were actually resting, that somebody is, somebody's trying to make a connection. Mm. Hoover actually went so far as to instruct the agents to pretend that they had captured Alvin Purpose. And at this time, he was the nation's most wanted fugitive. And what he did, he did that to see if the news actually would be leaked. And at the time, it wasn't. So, Shukas um, had actually, um, a few years ago, Shukas uh, was able to get a FOIA uh Federal information. Oh God, I'm a, I'm a journalist and I can't even remember what a FOIA. And I've done a FOIA before, but he got a FOIA and that it's basically you know all these records are you know are available to the public and you just have to you know get a FOIA. And according to that FOIA, from via J Edgar Hoover, Bolton said that the massacre was carried out by the Capone organization, in an attempt to eliminate Bugs Moran. And it was first planned at Fred Goat's Resort on Cranberry Lake near Coteray, Wisconsin, in October or November of 1928. And those present at the resort during that time included Al Capone, Gus Winkler, Fred Goats, Fred Killer Burt, Louis Campagna, Bill Pacelli, who would actually become a Illinois state senator. So, I mean, just keep that tradition of Illinois wow. politicians. is that when it all started? <laughs> and Bolton said that Goats had bring, had him bring a pot of spaghetti and other food to resort, and that men were there for two, three weeks hunting and fishing. Capone had headed wow. to Florida, leaving Frank Nitty in charge of the operation. And he was backed by bodyguard Frank Rio. And Bowden said that he bought a Cadillac car from a dealer on South Michigan Avenue, believing that it was to be used for hauling alcohol. And he thought that he used the name James Martin when buying it. He said that when he was taking the car dealer uh, to a man named Louis Lipschultz, he also gave him the money for the car. And Bowden said that on the day of the massacre, Operations were carried out from the Circus Cafe. He identified the actual killers as Fred Goats, Gus Winkler, Fred Kullerberg, Ray Nugent, and Bob Carey. And he claimed that none of the men wore police uniforms, but they did wear police badges. And he said the killers didn't know the men inside the garage, so they just killed them all rather than let Moran get away. 
And Bowden said Claude Maddox and Cone Tony Capizzo, along with a man named Shocker from St. Louis, burnt the Cadillac after murders. And it was worth, or excuse me, it was worth noting that Bowden actually didn't render a confession, at least not to the actual murders, but he actually stated, or in fact, Hoover actually stated that Bowden consistently denied that he personally participated in the massacre. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he sort of beat around the bush. He actually said that the lookouts posted at uh, 2127 North Clark Street, across the street from the garage, were James Jimmy the Suede and Moran and Jimmy McCrusson. But is this something we can actually believe? Mm. So the level of detail and sheer number, number of people implicated by Bolin opened his statement up to a lot of scrutiny. Actually, in spite, there was very little that is actually suspect. And the general names that he provided all generally make sense and fit with the known facts. The men that were identified as the actual killers had known ties to each other, both before and after the massacre. And they were already fugitives from murder charges and had very little to lose. Boy. So, from that... And, and as uh, they really document, um, it's just a lot of, uh, what's the word, a lot of just inconsistency, a lot of just doubt concerning Bolton's confession. And it just eventually led to just a pile of just nowhere. And it's kind of, in a, in a sense, took on a life of its own. And again... As official, as it is official, this is still an unsolved murder. Uh, it's this very, very, and, and you would think Al Capone. And it is clear cut, being Bolden, uh, Bolden's confession. Al Capone has been warring with Bugs Moran for years. He finds okay, this is something. This is finally a means and a motive to finally take out this competition. And conveniently, the competition has been all but eradicated. But as we've been talking about for the last hour or so, it's just so many intersecting layers of, okay, there are people, associates of Capone, but was Capone the guy who made that, you know, definitive, without a shadow of a doubt, and that is something that we may never know, even though it appears to be, you know? The only person that's going to know is going to be the one who put it together and the ones who killed them, mm-hmm. um, which sucks, because those are the only individuals that are going to know the murders, um, and probably a majority of these individuals took it to the grave with them. Yeah. So we talk about we haven't really talked about Capone per se, but what becomes of him? He, he Bugs Moran pretty much you know after the Saint Valentine's Day massacre, Moran just really loses. I'm steam is the word, but Capone has the city at his grasp. He doesn't have to worry about Moran like he fit, did for years. And as we talked about it, he has the resources, he has the money, he has the territory. Chicago is his town. 
but the motherfucker didn't pay his taxes, and that's what eventually led to his downfall. So, Attorney General, Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrand had realized that mob figures led these lavish lifestyles, but they never filed tax returns. And thus, if they couldn't get uh, uh, someone like Capone in for racketeering or uh, organized crime dealings or murder or murder because again he has his hands on and he has his imprint on all these different sectors well they can get him on tax evasion that's right mm-hmm. you can get him on something so the IRS uh, begins this special investigation unit and they choose Frank J. Wilson to investigate Capone with the focus on his spending and I guess before we uh, go, if I go any further, uh, you did see the uh, watch the Untouchables before, right? The movie Untouchables. Uh, uh, just bits and pieces okay. of it's it. Like it, it when it's... I know, I know. Oh, oh, but the reason I bring this up is that the I guess the popular conception or misconception uh, is that okay, Elliot Ness, who was a Treasury agent. That he was the man who got Al Capone, and that's pretty much what the movie frames. And indeed, Elliot Ness uh, was involved in that investigation, but uh, this is the reason why Americans are so great at revisionist history. So, do what you will on that. And, um, Did you say repeating history? Revisionist history. Oh, I thought you said repeating. I go, I feel like that's the whole world. We all like to repeat yeah. history. Yeah, don't. Those who do not learn are bound to uh, repeat it, right? So, they, like I said, the IRS Special Investigation Unit, they choose Frank J. Wilson to investigate Capone. And the key to Capone's conviction on tax charges was proving his income. And the most valuable evidence uh, was originating his offer to pay tax. And eventually they find out that Capone was willing to pay tax for various years, admitting income of 100000 for 1928 and 1929. But without any investigation, the government had given a letter from a lawyer acting for Capone conceding his large taxable income for certain years. So that said, Capone was charged in 1931 with tax account. Oh, tax Income tax evasion. There we go. And Capone was eventually found guilty and was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. So after seven years of really uh, of being in, in charge for Chicago, he gives all of that away. And... What? It just sounds really anticlimactic. You think somebody will Capone, like, something big is going to happen. He's he's going to get whacked. Or the police finally get gumption, and they're going to build something on murder and racketeering and prohibition and all this stuff. Yeah, Yeah. and it's tax evasion that finally gets Al Capone. And that's the worst. And And you're right. That's his downfall. That's literally what kills him. Yeah. So soon after... He pretty much changes his whole defense team uh, with experts in tax law, and they get the case or they get the trial. And in terms of an appeal, 
all the way to the Supreme Court, but the appeal failed. And while he was in prison, Capone showed signs of dementia, which was apparently caused by gonorrhea. Ugh. I, I really just ate away at his brain and yeah, just yeah. I I don't know what kind I don't brain. know what type of fucking they were having in the 1920s and 1930s, but if it's the fact that it could change, <laughs> this is what happens when you don't take medicine and oh. don't take care of yourself. This is, I mean, I'm sure there's different levels of it, um, of stages of it. You know, some's probably very mild. Mm-hmm. Other ones are really 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 intense such as Mm. Al Capone's and yeah and get this towards the last years of his life um eyewitnesses and 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 confidants and friends had reported that he had he he had the mindset of what a 10 year old child so Mm -hmm. that's that, that is just crazy and he was eventually released but he was committed um, after eight years of incarceration, and on January twenty fifth, nineteen forty seven, Capone died of cardiac arrest after uh, suffering a stroke. So that uh, ends the saga of Al Capone, and um, yeah, that is it's life. Yeah, and the question, and the crap question still remains: Is did he did he orchestrate the entire Saint Valentine's massacre? Was he the one? We know Killer Burke was involved, but was there another police officer who's the one that mm-hmm. instigated it? Was it Capone? Was it a different gang? It yes. just there's there's after this whole story, it's just there's so many more questions than there are answers, and right. That's what's so awesome about history is the Saint Saint Valentine's Massacre happened. There's a reason behind it, and Mm-hmm. You know, we want to say it's for revenge. It could have been for bootlegging. It could have been mm-hmm. for. It could have been for revenge. It yeah, and it, been... like I said, it, it just uh, as we referenced or talked about um, on part one, um, you have this gang war going on for years, and it kind of just reaches this crescendo when Capone's consigliere got it. Uh, was whacked only three, four months, uh, or six months before the massacre. So it just seems that Capone has the means, and he has the motive, and he has the most to to gain with Bugs Moran's, you know, gang out of the picture. So I just guess because of that, and he's been involved in numerous killings over the years. We just chalk it up as okay, you know. It, it seems like it's Capone. Who knows? It may have been, but we just again we don't have the definitive, without a shadow of a doubt, that yeah. it is him. We don't have the smoking gun. Yeah, it sucks because there is evidence, and you do have proof that individuals were there, but you don't have the connection mm-hmm. for the evidence to make it a crime, and it. It's or to to make the individual guilty of the crime. And I was just watching Cold Justice earlier, where they have evidence of somebody's thumbprint on a door, but they can't prove. Word. If it, they can't prove if that fingerprint was related to the person's murder or just stopping by. So wow. It's especially nowadays too, because 
there's so many different ways to look at a murder. And back then it was, life was pretty black, black and Al Capone showed up and made it yeah. great. So um, that uh, right there is the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Again, you can find, guys can find so much information just on this case. Um, you guys can go to uh, a really good source, uh, newspapers.com. Um, really with the first part, uh, um, I got me a free account. Like It was like a seven-day trial, and I was able to go back uh, to go to clippings or uh, past newspapers from 1929, 1928, just to find, like, these little tidbits. And um, even this uh, website was just a little, just to find, it was, just, like, just came out of nowhere. ChicagoTrueCrime.com, we will be posting those links up. And it's just a lot of more intricate, you know, uh, stories or, or um, evidence uh, in that. So, um, again, guys, thank you so much. Um, we will be coming back. Actually, uh, we're going to be recording right after this one a very special mini-sode. Uh, that's probably going to turn into a full-blown episode, which we are going to be talking about R. Kelly. Um, yeah, I want to give away all that, but as we are recording, only a few hours before we start recording, R. Kelly was taken into custody, um, rested on, uh, <laughs> boy, I think it's the end of him. But uh, that's just, yeah, that's just there's, my... there's new updates. I just checked. There's new updates oh, on yeah. his actual conviction. So we'll, um, we'll we'll save that for the mini sode again, guys. Thank you so much. Um, before we go, hit them with the uh, social media where we can they can find us. You can find us. The best way to hit us up if you ever want to talk to us, give us information, tell us a story, whatever you want to do. You can find us at Illinois with Bird and Cam on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at Instacam630. And you can find me on Twitter at I Like Stuff630. And you can find me on Bird. Oh boy. I was going to do it with, the, with Twitter, and I just forgot it. Um, find me on Twitter on Birdman4America, Birdman4, number four, America. You can find me on Instagram with Bird underscore your underscore enthusiasm. And you can find me on Facebook on Birdman Iceberg. And again, uh, guys, thank you so much. Um, your support is our lifeblood. So, thank you guys. Uh, guys so much. You this is Killinois with Bird and Cam, powered by Media Alley. Um, until, fuck, an hour from now, if you guys are listening to back and back, I know when Frank, my best friend in the whole wide world, when he listens to this, he's like, oh, fuck, oh, so I'm so this, oh, I'm about to listen to that, so we will be back. Yo, Frank, you the best, man, you the best, and let's shout out to you, Frank. And shout out to all you guys, you know, you, again. Yeah, all you guys, all all you mofos out there, you guys are our greatest supporters, and we're having fun with this, and you guys are liking it, so yay! So we will be back with more in a bit, so again, thank you so much, Uh, we'll see you down the road, peace. See you bitches!